Hey everybody, this is Paul with 10-4 Lord, and tonight I am in Baton Rouge. I'm in the truck, um, headed to Mobile early in the morning. So, uh, here getting set up, gonna get me a good night's sleep, or at least try to, before I get up early and head out. But, um, wanted to go over the uh, Acts chapter 17. We had gotten started on that, we covered that. Uh, at my house, we cover the first part of Acts chapter 17, and I wanted to, uh, we, I went into that this afternoon, my wife and my daughters and I, we, we had a little Bible study at a coffee shop, and I taught that to them there, but I wanted to go ahead and cover some of those things with y'all tonight, and uh, so I don't want to leave anybody hanging. So let's go ahead and just dive in here in Acts chapter 17. And we're getting down to, let's pick up uh, at verse 18 just for a little context. Paul is speaking to, he's in Athens, Athens, Greece, and he's speaking to some Epicureans and Stoics. And just a reminder, Epicureans, their whole philosophy was basically be happy, um, avoid pain of any kind, whether physical or emotional. Um, unlike, they've been, they've been misrepresented over the centuries to uh, to the point where people say that the Epicureans were about drunkenness and debauchery, and that's actually not what that philosophy was about. Um, in fact, because, and that was part of the philosophy, because if you're avoiding pain, well, if you take things to excess, then that's going to bring a lot more pain and a lot longer lasting pain than the temporary pleasure that you had. So now that wasn't really part of their philosophy. Um, basically, they just had this kind of easygoing, uh, don't worry, be happy kind of philosophy. And, you know, it was just about enjoying simple food, that good food, but simple food, not having to... Um, have luxuries and not really being someone with a lot of ambition and just doing what you need, working whatever you needed to do and just to, uh, just to live and subsist and, and not be obsessed with material gain. And there's wisdom in that. And if you read Ecclesiastes, which was written by Solomon, which was the man, David's son, who God gave more wisdom than any man on earth, Solomon talks about that. If you read Ecclesiastes, there's the, the aspect that there are things in life that God has given us to enjoy, and you should enjoy them, right? Not to excess, obviously, but, you know, there's, there's wisdom um, and, and uh, what's the, the there There's wisdom and, and it really even humility in simply enjoying your life. And that's one of the things that I get out of Ecclesiastes is that, to me, the theme of one of the big themes of Ecclesiastes is there is a God and you're not him. So don't take yourself so seriously and just do what God tells you to do and enjoy your life. Okay, that's basically that's one of the big themes of Ecclesiastes. Um, and then uh, so that was the, the thing about them. And and so the Epicureans, they, they try to keep life simple and enjoy life and avoid pain. Okay, so that was their thing. And 
Again, there is some wisdom to that, but that alone by itself, Solomon himself would say in Ecclesiastes, that that in itself is vanity, that it's empty. And the reason is that this life is very short. And so if all you're about is, you know, this this short, brief life and just trying to enjoy this itty-bitty little time that we have on uh, on this earth, well, that's not going to last long. And like they say, you're going to be a dead a lot longer than you're alive. Um, and then there's going to come a point where you're going to have to stand before God. You're going to have to stand before the, the judgment throne of God. And if you just lived your life for the things of this life, it's not going to go well for you. Um, especially if you didn't seek while you're on this earth, if you did not seek to know your creator and be in relationship with creator, then it's not going to go well for you. And then on the other side, you have the Stoics and the Stoics philosophy, instead of avoiding pain, the, Sto the Stoics embraced pain and saw pain as a means to, uh, of self-development, of, of building character and becoming a better person. And there is some wisdom in that. And, you know, Ecclesiastes says, you know, it's better to go in the house of mourning than the house of mirth, but that is the end of all things, of, of all men, and the wise will lay it to heart. Um, you know, so there is, because the reality is, is if you're just trying to avoid pain, well, good luck with that, because life's full of pain. Sad things happen, you know, terrible things happen. That's part of living in this fallen world that we live in since Adam fell. And, and the devil, Satan, became the, the god of this world, as the Bible refers to him. You know, the, the, the kingdoms of the world were delivered to Satan temporarily. And so because we are fallen people, we live in a fallen world, there is a lot, there's a lot of pain in life. And so if you're just trying to avoid it, you're going to have a really difficult time. Um, and so learning to deal with hardship and pain and learn from it and build character. Yes, there is some wisdom in that. And and really the overriding theme of Stoic philosophy was be a good person. You know, that's really what it boils down to it. Be, be virtuous, right? And again, there is wisdom in that, but the problem with it is that no matter how quote unquote good you are, your, your good deeds will never erase your bad deeds before God, okay? If you rob a bank and then you help a little old lady across the street, it doesn't erase the fact that you rob a bank. If you murder somebody and then you spend the rest of your life doing good deeds, it doesn't take away the fact that you murdered somebody. And so it's foolishness to think that, you know, that by being virtuous that you could ever attain and become truly virtuous, um, truly good. And the only one who's ever done that is Jesus. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died, he suffered, he was tortured and suffered and died in our place to pay the, our sin debt, to take our place, okay? And then three days and three days, three days and three nights later, God raised him from the dead and he ascended up to the Father and he presented himself as the payment for our sin. 
and he presented himself as our our defense attorney before the throne of God. And it's only through him that we can be made right with God. It's only through Jesus Christ and what he did for us that we can be placed into right relationship with God. There is no other way. And so if your philosophy of life is trying to be a good person, well, you're out of luck because you won't be. And again, this life is short. And if you never, if you never came to God on the terms that God accepts, which is the work of his son that he gave that you might be forgiven, then that goodness is it just, you know, it's not going to do you any good. Okay. So again, the most important thing, you know, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. So the most important thing is to be in right relationship with our creator. And then once that is right, once you come to right relationship with our creator through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and his death, burial, and resurrection, then yes, enjoy your life. Okay, and yes, absolutely, do good things, and, and certainly it, it, do good things so that you can open doors to share the gospel with people. Don't do good things so that you can get people to pat you on the back uh, and get attention to you, but do good deeds so that you might um, be a good testimony, a good witness for Jesus Christ and have opportunities to to share the gospel with people, Okay. So that's verse 18, <laughs> or part of it anyway. So that's just a little uh, little uh, context here. So in verse 18, you know, these Epicureans and these Stoics, who, by the way, worshipped, uh, worshipped other gods, the Epicureans were deists, and the Stoics were polytheists. So I'm not going to get into that right now. If you want to look up deist and polytheist, and get an understanding of what that means. I'm sure you can find several definitions. But anyway, they said of Paul, they said, what will this babbler say? You know, what's this guy, what nonsense is this guy talking about? And people do that today. Um, others said, he seemeth to be a setter for a forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So these men had never heard of the God of the Bible, the, the one true God who created all things. They had never heard of, they didn't, they didn't have the backstory like when Paul went to synagogues and preached to the Jews and the Gentile proselytes there who had the backstory, who knew about Genesis, who knew about the law and the covenants. Well, these guys didn't have that. They didn't have a frame of reference. And so they didn't know these things. They, they'd never heard of resurrection, of the dead being raised, right? So Paul then has to take these guys at the very basics, the, 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 just the ground level and explain to them about this God that they don't know. So it says in verse 19, and they took him and brought him unto Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Okay. So Areopagus is a place in Athens. It's this hill where they had like a council, like a court, and where they would talk about things of religion and philosophy. And it was also called Mars Hill because Ares, A-R-E-S, was the Greek deity 
and Mars is the Roman equivalent of Eris. So, and they're saying, hey, what, what, they said, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. In other words, this new thing that you're talking about, it's new to us. What, what are you talking about? What's this about? Verse 20, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. Now, doesn't that sound like the Western world? Doesn't that sound like uh, the United States? Because these guys, I mean, if, if Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff, if that was around back then, they would have been on their phones nonstop because they had, they had such a prosperous life in Athens that they had a lot of leisure time. And in that leisure time, they're always wanting to find out what the new thing is, you know, news about wars, philosophy, religion. They always wanted to hear what's the latest thing, right? Okay, so that's the Athenians. It says, then Paul, verse 22, then Paul stood up, stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. So, Paul is saying, When I was walking through here, I saw an altar, it said, To the unknown God. So these guys were so, you know, into, um, you know, the, their religious practices that they were worried that they didn't want to take the chance of offending a deity that they didn't know about. So just in case, I think it's, it's, it's kind of funny and it's kind of cool at the same time. Just in case they made an altar to the unknown God, just so they don't offend a God that they don't know about. Right? So Paul's like, Oh, there's an open door. So, okay, this is, I'm going to ta tell you about this unknown God that you've been worshiping. Verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein. Okay, now that's a distinction right there. Okay, that, that may not sound so earth-shattering and strange to us with our understanding of the Bible, but to these Athenians, the idea that of, of the deity creating the universe, creating the heavens and the earth, that was foreign to them. They were polytheistic, and these polytheistic gods, deities, false gods that they worshipped, were not uh, what's called transcendent. They, they in, in their religious mind, in their religious world, their deities existed within the created universe, not beyond it, and certainly didn't create it, okay? So, so that, that's a distinct and new thing that he's telling them, that God, singular, not gods, God, singular, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. That's another big departure. He's saying that God, the true God who created all things and is transcendent, he's outside of creation, inside creation, he's everywhere, and he made everything, and he doesn't dwell in these temples you've made, okay? Um, which they believe that their, you know, their polytheistic god did, the gods did dwell in their temples. Um, it says, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. 
neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. So he, he doesn't need to be fed, okay? Unlike perhaps some of their deities, they, they thought that they needed to feed them, I suppose. Uh, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So he is the source of life. He doesn't need anything from you, okay? Verse 26, And hath made of one blood all nations for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation. So he's saying that the, the Creator made all of mankind, okay, and that we're, all, we're of one blood. We are all related. We all go back to Adam and Eve. And that he made all of us. And then verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So it's like the, a picture of someone in a dark room, pitch black, and they're trying to find something, but they can't see anything. So they're just feeling around in the dark. So that's the picture that Paul gives of mankind, that mankind is just, is, it's not that God is far, right? God is everywhere present. God is omnipresent, okay? And so it's isn't that God is far, but man is spiritually blind. And so men feel around and bump around in the dark, seeking after God, okay? Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also certain of your own, as certain also of your own pro prophet. Excuse me. Let me read that again. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said. For we are his offspring. So he's he's giving them a reference within their own culture, to say that you know their in their culture the Greek some of the Greek poets would have said that men were the offspring of the gods, plural. But he's saying that man is the offspring of the God. And that, and understand this, that man is the offspring of God in the sense that God, the Bible says God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, man is a spirit. The Bible talks about the spirit of man. Okay, every man, regardless if, if he's born again or not, every man is spirit, soul, and body. The Bible talks about the spirit of man, and, and that's a whole other topic um, that would take a long time to teach, but that's something you can look up and look into. But man is a spirit who possesses a soul and lives in a body. Okay, so that is the image of God that we have. It's not our, a physical image. It's that we are a spirit. Man is a spirit. And so we ought to be in relationship with God, our creator, who is a spirit. Okay. For verse 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone or graven by art and man's device. So check this out. Um, Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron taught and teach a, an evangelism class called The Way of the Master. And the way that they do it is they, they use examples of things that Jesus did in the Gospels where he used the law of Moses to bring the law, the, the, the conviction, the knowledge of sin and the conviction of sin to people that they might see that they have offended the, their creator, that they've offended God, 
that they're guilty of sin, that they need a Savior, okay? People don't value a cure unless they understand that they have the disease, okay? And so, and it's a pattern you see throughout the New Testament. And it's using that the law of God to bring the knowledge of sin and guilt so that people might desire the the solution, the, the cure, which is the gospel of, of grace. So what we've seen so far is Paul's talked to them about the one true God who created all things and created us, okay? So in that, he is communicating to them the first commandment. I, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me, okay? So that's, that's, that's the first commandment. Now he's getting into the idols. He's saying, that, the, that we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone or graven by art and man's device. So now he's talking about the second commandment. Commandment: You shall have, you shall make no graven image to bow down before it and worship, right? So he's talked to them about the first and second commandment. He's using, as we like to refer to it as, the way of the master. And it says, verse 30, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth he all men everywhere to repent. So he's, he's basically saying that God, in our modern vernacular, we might say, cut you some slack in the past, okay? But now he's commanding all men everywhere, not just the Jews, but all men everywhere. That means the, the Gentiles in Macedonia and Greece and Italy and Africa and Saudi Arabia and China, all men everywhere must repent of worshiping other gods, worship only the one true God, the creator, okay, and, and come into right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to, unto all men, and then he has raised him from the dead. So he's, So now he's talking about a coming day of judgment. He's saying, okay, you need to repent. You've offended the, your creator in worshiping other gods and, and bowing down to, to graven images. There's coming a day of judgment, and you need to repent, and, and that Jesus Christ is the one who's going to do the judging, and God raised him from the dead. Okay? So he covered a lot. Of, I mean, there's so much that he... So much truth that he condensed in just to a, a few short sentences, which is just amazing. Verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, all right? Some, some of them were just, you know, laughing and making fun of him, right? Uh, and they do that today. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Oh, he's like, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, you know let, we'd like to hear some more about this sometime, okay? So Paul, Paul departed from among them. So... Paul left both of those groups, the, the, one, the, the scoffers, the mockers, and the ones who said, yeah, you know, that's interesting, we'll hear some more about that later. So Paul left them, you know. He delivered the message. He didn't need to sit there and argue with them and, and try to twist their arm and get them to believe. It's not your job to get people to believe the gospel. Your job is to present the gospel truth to them. What they do with it is their business. That's between them and God, okay? You have no control over that. So Paul departed from among them. Then verse 34, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. And that I just think that's tremendous. 
Paul hadn't even done any miracles in Athens. He had done several miracles before then, but he hadn't even done any miracles in Athens. He brings the gospel, which is a fresh revelation to people who've never heard it, you know, and um, a pretty short message, right? A pretty short gospel message. And yet, some of these men believed, and they claved to him. They clung to the Apostle Paul. They, they, they stuck by his side and said, okay, we believe, please, you know, tell us more. Help us. Help us to know this God that you've just introduced us to, okay? It says, among them were, which was Dionysus, Dionysius, excuse me, the Aero, Areop, Areopagite. That's a tough one. Areopagite. And that means someone who's part of that, that council, that, uh, that court of Areopagus. So he was uh, a influential part of that community. And a woman named Demarius and others with them. Okay. So that ends chapter 17 next is chapter 18 we'll get into that at another time uh, but just to, to summarize and wrap up Paul he presented the gospel to people who really had no point of reference and and by the Holy Spirit helping him he did just an amazing job and he preached a powerful condensed gospel message he didn't sit around um wondering if they're going to believe and begging people to believe. He delivered the message and then he walked away. And the ones who wanted truth, those who were truly seeking after to know the creator, believed and they followed him. Okay? So that's just an important lesson. Never beg people to believe the gospel. Present it to them. And and show respect to the word of God. Show respect to the gospel. Yes, we absolutely want people to believe the gospel and be saved but you know you they say you can't you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink and you know that's a true proverb you know it's not a bible proverb but it's a true proverb you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink and you know so that's what we have to do and and I've said this before but it's so important there's only one peop one way for people to have an opportunity to be saved. There is only one way for us to provide people an opportunity to be saved, and that is to present the biblical gospel to them. That is not to invite them to repeat a prayer. Okay, There's no place in the Bible that you can show me where anyone did such a thing that to invite people to repeat a prayer in order for them to be saved. It's not there. They preach the gospel. And those who believe will be saved, and those who don't believe will be condemned. It's that simple. So if you do care about people, if you do really want people to be saved, then preach the gospel to them. Okay? That, that's the best thing you can do, to preach the biblical gospel. And, and I can't say that, I can't emphasize that strongly enough. So, again, next, next time we'll, we'll pick up in chapter 18. And until then, God bless y'all. Grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's the million dollar question. Will you go to heaven when you die?
Here's a quick test. Have you ever lied, stolen, or used God's name in vain? Jesus said, Whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you have done these things, God sees you as a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer at heart, and the Bible warns that one day God will punish you in a terrible place called hell. But God is not willing that any should perish. Sinners broke God's law, and Jesus paid their fine. This means that God can legally dismiss your case. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Then Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death. Today, repent and trust Jesus, and God will give you eternal life as a free gift. Then read the Bible daily and obey it, and God will never fail you.